What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that Imagine extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now it's a putting off. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fan. Welcome to the What The Footy podcast, the podcast that takes football fans behind the scenes. Today, I'm unfortunately, but fortunately joined with our first ever Spurs fan as a guest. <laughs> Guys, I'm joined by Rowena Samrasinha. Rowena spent the last 15 years of her career negotiating and working on some of the biggest live sports events in the world such as the olympics and the euros i thought i'd get her on here today guys to sort of deep dive into when as fans we can finally return to watching live sport and almost speak about uh, the sort of football event calendar and all the games that we have sort of coming up really it's a pleasure to have her on today's podcast episode great to have you here Irina. Thanks very much, Paul. It's great to be here. Yes, so um, as you sort of know, uh, based on what I've been doing so far, I've sort of added a new sort of element to the podcast so far, which is uh, an edition called What the Footy Lying For. Why lying for? I'm currently 2-1 down, so um, hoping to bring back some points this week. So could you take me through your two truths, one lie, please? Okay, so the first statement is uh, I once played tennis against Pat Cash on court number three at Wimbledon. Mm. The second one is I once served tea to the Queen at the Royal Household Cricket Match. Mm, And then the third one is that I've raced against Usain Bolt. Um, so I know you're quite pally with you saying, um, take a lot of selfies of him, don't you? Um, so, I'm, but then I know you did waitressing in your early days. Um, I'm going to go, it's a tough one. I'm going to go with... The race against Usain, because a race could literally have been about five or ten yards. I'm going to say that's the truth. And I'm going to say the truth is you played tennis with Pat Cash. Um, I know you're into your tennis. I don't know how you would have met Pat Cash in any shape of imagination. Um, But yeah, I'm going to go with those two as the truth. And the lie is serving tea to the queen. Um... So yeah, in the in the next part, obviously, we're going to find out towards the end. We're going to find out the answers to that. Um, but am I sort of on the right sort of tracks of that, or I couldn't possibly tell you, Paul. That would spoil the surprise. <laughs> spoil the surprise, really. But yeah, let's let's get into it, Rowena, because um, the main reason I wanted to bring you on is because obviously I know you've been heavily involved in the commercialization of sport over the last sort of fifteen years my final episode of season one sort of went into the whole sort of obviously what was experiencing now with COVID-19 and um, and obviously football at that time was suspended and football sort of returned and 
as 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 we're all aware of, there's a lot of events that have obviously been cancelled and pushed back. I think I just think it'd be great for the listeners to sort of find out the sort of ins and outs with obviously football live events, scheduling them, getting them back up and running, and and when we can finally finally return to to enjoying live sport, really. So just just sort of give give the listeners a sort of insight into what it's like actually being involved uh, with the different sort of governing bodies that, that you've been involved with in your career because looking at the sort of schedule lists of you've got the UEFA Nations League coming up you've got the Euro playoffs coming up we've got African Cup of Nations due to happen in January we've got the FIFA Club World Cup due to happen and there's there's historically been a lot of conflict between different governing bodies just sort of shed some light uh, into into that yeah, I mean, oh gosh, we're in a really crazy time right now. And I think it's interesting you talked about that you'd already discussed, like I imagine the conversations you had um, in March around uh, around this crazy pandemic were totally different to the one we're probably going to have today because so much has changed and, and, and still there's so much uncertainty um, that, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone in three months time, let alone in a year. Yeah. So... The thing that we're really seeing right now is, um, fortunately, sport live sport has come back in some shape. Um, but really, everyone's a little bit on eggshells right now because we're we're just hoping that there isn't a major second spike and that we have to shut everything down again. Um, but that actually we can we can sort of keep up this momentum, um, which I think when it, when we talk about closed door sport. Um, I think we can because you know all the testing in place and the isolation um you know it's what we've seen from the bundesliga and from the premier league so far is, is that they have been complete success stories and mm. where there have been the odd case of covid they've managed to be isolated and, and dealt with um so i think in terms of, of closed door sport certainly this has been successful from an organizational perspective um, and I think we, we can continue to go forward with that. But I know certainly the listeners will be hoping that I'm going to say, yeah, sure, we're all going to be back in stadiums in, in a few months' time. And I think that's the point that everybody is so um, nervous about because we just we just don't know, you know. And there are yeah. so many um, so many overarching influences, um, you know. And the, the first. The most important point is is the health of the nation and the health of the players. You know, if there's any risk to people and to people's lives, sport has to come second. Um, and so that's that's where all this uncertainty sort of lies at the moment. No, definitely. And just just sort of building on that, um, obviously towards the um, the last episode of season one. We sort of spoke about how, at the time, obviously with, with how bleak things were looking at, we sort of discussed how the the sort of drives obviously behind football and how it's become very commercialised in terms of whether you want to look at the TV rights deal and how any sort of drive to to bring sport back would, would obviously have some element to do with the financial sort of motivations. Um, we, we've recently seen, obviously, the emphasis of the Euros wanting to still... Um, obviously make uh, next summer's uh, postponed tournament yet again a multi-city event I know obviously you worked on Euro 2008 and um, that was obviously across Austria and Switzerland what, what is um, UEFA's sort of obsession with this 
sort of multi-city approach because obviously it, it sounds great for someone looking to go into railing or someone someone looking <laughs> to watch football across across various countries but in light of obviously what's happened with the pandemic is it still a wise decision from because because from the outside looking in it doesn't doesn't still really make sense to me because we've seen for example uh with the champions league they're trying to potentially make all of those games happen in portugal and then eventually have the final of course in portugal what what is it with this obsession with this multi-city because for me it seems like it's just a, a financially based uh, decision really well, it's it's a few things, and, and like you said, Paul, like my my Euro two thousand and eight, my one, um, <laughs> was split across uh, Switzerland and Austria. It was actually the second time they'd done a split event. So the first one was in two thousand when it was split between Belgium and Holland, mm. um, and then subsequently they had twenty twelve in Poland and Ukraine, um, and it's quite a unique concept well it at the time and i'm going to i'm going to caveat that because now we are seeing a few other events looking at this structure but mm. um it's quite unique for europe because um if you take away the sort of the big countries like the frances and the germanys a lot of a lot of countries in the world are actually uh, sorry in europe are really small and especially for something like like the euro um, where you need to have certain size stadiums, where you need a certain number of venues, which, by the way, has all increased for the 2020s. So, you know, we've now got, um, we've got an expanded competition. So we've gone from needing eight stadiums to needing 10. With those stadiums, we've got in increased capacity. It's really difficult for a lot of the smaller countries in Europe to have enough uh, facilities to stage the event. So, for example, when, when Belgium and Holland festered in 2000, it was because neither of those countries would have been able to do it on their own. Um, and a little bit, that's the same for, to, can be said for Switzerland and Austria, um, because Switzerland would never have been able to have hosted it on its own. So that's, um, that is a, was a, a, bit, a big driving factor, especially for the European football championships, um, as to why they've in the past had these um, shared events. But the Euro 2020 obviously goes a lot further because actually we're having it in four major host countries, but then also some other smaller cities are smaller hosting ones, sort of yeah. around it. But, um, you know, in 2012, when they made the announcement, it was received almost completely negatively. Um, you know, and everyone thought about, oh, it's going to be a nightmare logistically. It's going to be increased costs for fans. Yeah. Um, you know, is this all because of the commercialization of the sport? But actually, um, you know, a lot of sporting events and, and you know, the Olympics included are struggling to get bidding cities to come forward now. Um, you know, even pre-COVID, which is another discussion that we, you know, hopefully there'll be time to move on to. But um, yeah. you know, delaying suddenly there's all these costs that weren't even anticipated. But you know, there's the expense of the the events has has skyrocketed. You know, for for Tokyo 2020, um, even before COVID, they'd supposedly doubled their anticipated costs of 12.6 billion. Yeah. Um, and if you look at Brazil, for example, the 2014 World Cup and the 2016 Olympics, after those two events, Brazil worst, uh, faced its worst recession in in 25 years. Mm. So countries are suddenly taking a step back and thinking, actually, you know, with these onerous obligations, with the expense, actually often 
more often than not, it's a loss-making event. So when you when you look at it like that, um, a multi-city concept is actually a really attractive proposition because um, because suddenly you're you're spreading out these costs around everyone. You still get the tourist benefits of people coming in and out of the city and the countries, um, but actually you don't have the onus obligations of staging a full-on championships. Um, yeah, but I think I think that's that's definitely a of course like a fascinating and, and valid argument. But I think obviously with COVID obviously happening and the fact that we were looking at obviously the semi-finals and the finals happening at Wembley, I just don't understand why a decision to stage it somewhere like uh, like obviously England and, and Britain where we have huge stadiums and huge arenas that that could facilitate such an event like this just wouldn't have been been a sort of option. Obviously, I wasn't there when they were having the conversations. I would have loved to have been there to put this put this wonderful argument forward. But um, that's that's yeah. I think for me. That's just a bit I'm just just confused about. I think I think that the you know what you have to think about is the whole point about sport is is that it's sport for everybody. It's not just for the big mm. wealthy nations. And, and you know a lot of sports have taken the risk. You know the, the World Cup took the risk of going to South Africa, and 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 often, more often than not, it doesn't pay off um, yeah. because there's a reason. You know that these countries are developing nations. Their money needs to be going to different use, but. But certainly, you know, I'm from the school of thought that it that it should be sport for all and that we can't just host events in the same countries over and over and over again. So it's all very well to say, actually, we should just host in England. By the way, um, you know, England bid for a World Cup, but they haven't really bid for a major event in a long time because of the pressure. Um, you know, even if you think back to the London Olympics, I still remember even the day before the Olympics started, people were scathing about the fact that we were hosting this event. And it was only once mm. the event started and there was all this momentum that people got such positive feelings about it. So you can't just assume that the events are going to keep going back to the same countries. Otherwise, yeah, you know, and, and especially if you look at, you know, for the reasons I just said, if you look at Europe, really there's probably three countries that could, you know, that's, that's probably not fair, maybe four or five, but yeah. really it would be England, France, Germany, Spain and, and Italy, you know, and that's because they've got big football leagues with big existing football stadiums. Um, but otherwise, you know, these, but I actually think uh, in the post-COVID world, actually the multi-city concept could actually serve to benefit the event. You know, mm. going back to what I said at the start, there's still so many question marks around what live sport's going to look like next year. Um, and, you know, again, it's all to do with whether we get this under control and or whether, you know, when we hit winter, whether we're going to be back to square one a little bit. Um, but actually the benefit of having it in multi-city events is that even if we are all put back in lockdown or, you know, or we're, we're in a, a lesser lockdown that we can't travel perhaps in between countries or, you know, if we travel, we have to quarantine, quarantine. at least by having it in different cities, then at least the local fans would be able to still attend the events. I guess maybe I'm maybe a little bit sentimental because I was looking forward to, of course, football coming home. But just going, <laughs> just just going back on what on what you were just saying there, I, I really want to know. But who were really the winners and the losers in, in all of these sorts of stuff? Because, of course, you mentioned mentioned some really good points there in terms of you can't always be seeing the same sort of live events in in the big major sort of European cities. Um, because obviously, especially with a sport like football, we're seeing 
a lot of like, for example, the Europa League final last season was was pushed out to Baku. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing a lot more talk of um, sporting events and pre-season tournaments being uh, taking place in, in countries where they're trying to obviously actively invest into into football. We're seeing quite commonly now with boxing in terms of of how uh, countries and states like Qatar are actually looking to uh, and and, uh, and Saudi Arabia are actually looking to actively uh, spend a lot of money to obviously change the image of their country through sport. Who are really the winners and the losers in, in all these situations? Because ultimately it comes down to what's the best value for the fans. But by taking these events to all these different places, who are really the winners and the losers here? Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I come from two opposite sides. I come from the commercial side of sport, but I also, I'm in sport because of a pure passion and love for sport and, and for really growing sports. Um, you know, there's there's still a lot of sports that have appeal in very limited countries, and and you really see the the disadvantages that it faces as a result of that. Football is so unique um, because it really transcends boundaries. You know, it's uh, the Premier League is super popular in Indonesia, is you know is is in in crazy countries where uh, you know obviously Korea because they've got players in it, but in terms of um, the breadth of of appeal it's so it's so wide but that wasn't always the case you know that's yeah. happened over the last decade or so um, and that's because there's been more movement you know we've had players coming over um and suddenly there's there's an interest in these markets where there wasn't before and actually that's you know that does drive revenue you know we, we're seeing a lot of foreign sponsors that um you know, we never had before. And, and, you know, even before COVID, we were in a bit of a challenging sponsorship market. And if we look ahead to the next two years, you know, it's it's a bit, you know, someone who works in the commercialization of sport, it's a bit of a scary outlook. You know, no one's really sure ever, companies are trying to stay afloat right now, let alone invest in sport. So actually, this is when you really do need to be looking further outside the, the field. and. And how do you do that? You you know you make sport relevant to those countries, to those companies. And, and yes, it can be political. You know, certainly, in when I was working with the IWF previously, you know, often um, when a country bid for an event, they'd bring a sponsor as well at the same time. So it was there was a link um, with a foreign with a foreign organisation. But the idea behind that was also that that company would drive activation within the host country. Um, and would would also build sport in that country where perhaps it wasn't before. So uh, the reasoning now we're seeing, um, you know, that we saw Baku last time and we are looking at, you know, more events taking place around the Middle East because there is money there um, and yeah. there is an intention to spend money. I, I also um, have a bit of a, you know, I, I play devil's advocate a little bit here. You know, I've I've been involved in sport yeah. in Qatar over the last fifteen years, and I've seen the difference. You know, and I've I've seen you know, um, they've got this Aspire Sports Academy. They've they've got some amazing homegrown talent, and you know, there's a really famous high jumper called um, Bashim, who is basically he tells the story of when he was uh, in two thousand and six when the Asian Games were in Qatar, and he was a kit carrier. Um, and he was so in awe of having this event in his hometown, and that really drove him to being the best 
high jumper out there. Um, and it's it's great, you know, you, you can't you can't fault that. And it's like, why wouldn't we give kids in these countries the opportunity to see live sports? How mm. do we how do we grow sport in a country if it's always uh, thousands of miles away? Actually, we grow sport in the country by taking it to those countries. And yes, perhaps some of those countries have more money than others. But the point now we're saying is, is that we don't want live events to cripple countries as well. You know, we want it to we want it we want to take them there and develop them and um, and and help the countries. So 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 why shouldn't we do this? Um, and you know, again, it's 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 really around the globalization of sport, which perhaps has had a bit of a setback with with uh, limits yeah. on flying. But you know, I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll get back to that stage again very soon. My um, my sort of big prediction, I think, for this this decade is that I generally believe that we'll see a Premier League game um, happen in a different country because we're already seeing it in sports like um, the NFL, for instance, where obviously they're coming over to England. I think early this season we saw the La Liga Super Cup take place in Saudi Arabia. Um, I know a lot of the listeners and, and, and the fans will have their own opinion on, on, on stuff like that. I know quite a lot of... Arsenal fans had to go all the way out to Baku and see us horribly lose 4-1 uh, in a game that felt a bit like a friendly. Um, but I'll leave them to have their sort of, sort of opinion. But one thing I wanted to just sort of um, ask you also on this, having, of course, worked with various different governing bodies, is almost like you always hear, hear within the media and, and out there this whole clash between UEFA's agenda and FIFA's agenda. What's really missing in sport in terms of a sort of unified approach to sort of um, to sort of work to make things happen. I think for me, um, the the clearest thing I've seen recently in terms of FIFA and UEFA almost working in harmony is the whole idea of, of course, um, FIFA announced their sort of Club World Cup sort of uh, tournament to almost try and obviously compete with, of course, um, UEFA's sort of footballing schedule. They've almost obviously are looking to obviously postpone and push back that date to accompany um, UEFA obviously uh, with the Euro um, 2021. What's, what's sort of missing uh, within obviously harmonising that relationship and from what you've seen of course with different governing bodies and the sort of conflicts that, uh, that are involved? I mean I think at the end of the day and, it's, and it, is, it is changing but sports have always had to compete against each other and you know football's obviously always been up there on a sort of its own little step but certainly you know for me working in a lot of different olympic sports there's always been this tussle for uh, for consumer consumer attention um mm. and you know it's it's just it's you know it's, it's a battle for survival essentially um but you know that does still happen between obviously uefa and fifa um, but I think what we're seeing now, um, and actually, you know, I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if it's actually, you know, with, with the new generation coming through with the importance of esports, which is, you know, in 2030 yes. set to become the biggest sport in the world with something like predictions are around 3 billion players. Absolutely crazy. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, suddenly sports are suddenly thinking, oh my goodness, maybe we need to band together because there's external, um, threat to us which which we didn't really have before but mm. but certainly you know there's been so much um i don't want to say the word infighting but it's this 
disharmony um, even within sports themselves you know and again it's it's world level it's European level it's um, everyone wants to host their event and have the maximum number of people there or watching or competing in it um, so there in their view their event has needs needs to have uh, needs to take place at the best time for them and you know 20 30 years ago when we when we had less events it wasn't such an issue but now as we've seen with the restructuring of everything because of covid there are a lot of events that take place and so you are constantly tussling to see um who gets what and and obviously the most the most powerful often um come through but if you, if you look at sports like rugby, for example, you know, they're now talking about harmonising their global calendar because for so many years, it's been different between the Northern and Southern hemispheres and mm. um, everyone sort of had their own leagues taking place. And then you've had these windows and it's really affected how they've been able to grow the game. But now they've actually realised that actually what we need is unity among all those organisations involved in the sport in order to create a calendar that works for everybody um, and then that will really help the sport to grow. So I think that's the same sentiment across um, across a lot of different sports now. Um, but also there is this whole thing about working together um, like between sports as well <laughs> um, mm. to, to create this harmony. No, definitely, because I'm, I'm literally looking at the football event calendar and obviously I'm seeing the Premier League here, I'm looking, I'm looking at the FA here, UEFA, FIFA, CAF. The... the fact that, you know, the fact that women's sport was just completely shut down. Exactly. You know, and, and again, it goes back to this whole point that the Euro was postponed to next year. A lot of people felt without giving thought to the fact that the women's Euro was yeah, taking place and then yeah. that just that just got knocked on, you know, accordingly. And it, again, it just becomes this, this is where rightly or wrongly, the commercial aspects of sport come into play mm. um, and sports that are more powerful um, and more important from a commercial perspective will always win. Um, but it's getting that balance right um, that I hope will start to see more of um, and you know the bigger sports also supporting the smaller sports because everyone's coming out of a really really tough time um, and actually what we don't want to see is the sports disappear and, and from my perspective certainly I don't want to see women's sport disappear because we're just riding this huge wave from last year exactly and this is yeah you know make money out of it and then this has happened and just shut down everything and it's a it's a real shame i couldn't i couldn't agree more especially the fact that you look at how our, our women's uh, england team have performed in the last sort of two tournaments obviously reaching reaching the semi-finals you look at obviously the women's sort of super league how that's been progressing obviously it's been shut down and uh, like i'm an arsenal fan and, and our women's team are even more successful than the men's team they they even won the um <laughs> The league, yeah. the league um, last season, and it's like the point you mentioned there is it's just very, very pertinent, and uh, and hopefully everyone can collaborate and put put aside the politics and uh, and all that sort of stuff together to to work together really, and um, just just sort of going going a little bit further. I know, of course, um, obviously you worked on Rio and uh, in and around the time with with with, uh, with Rio, there was the whole Zika virus going on. What I wanted to really find out there is what sort of 
procedures did you guys put in place to almost sort of deal with that? Because I think the big thing for for all the fans who are listening and, and tuning in for this is just when when can I finally get back to the Emirates? I know you support Spurs, so probably you're not in no rush to get back to the stadium, but but um, when, definitely not after last night. When, when when can I finally return to to the Emirates and watching watching live sport and what what procedures are really needed? Like I'm. I was chatting to a Premier League club doctor earlier in this week and he was talking about the whole concept of digital health passports. I saw I saw a video of, of AFC Wimbledon who obviously building a new stadium of sort of these these sort of tunnels that fans can walk through and, and they get sprayed with all this with all these things in their face and all this different stuff. What what sort of things are needed for, for football to, to return in a safe environment? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what we're seeing is is that you know the return of live sport will definitely be guided by how a particular country is tackling the, the pandemic. I mean, you know, look at New Zealand; it's a success story. It's crazy. And it's actually, twenty thousand fans. Yeah, three weeks ago, and it's full stadiums, and it's amazing. And you know, they've they've only had a few more cases, and that's from people coming back into the country. So, I think. You know, I, I, without my crystal ball, it's really, really difficult to tell the listeners what's going to happen. But certainly, it is directly tied to to how we cope. So, you know, as lockdowns released, you know, let's really get this under control because the, the quicker we can reduce numbers, the less the less risk there is of spreading the virus, and then the more the more likelihood is is that we are going to go back. But in the meantime, there are these, you know, there's a lot of people working in a lot of different areas, such as you said, the athlete passport, um, all of these things to see how, if we are still in, in the midst of the pandemic in six months time, you know, what could we do to, to look at getting fans back in the scene? But, you know, in the meantime, sports are focusing on, on how, how they can engage fans in different ways. You know, we've seen the Zoom walls, a bit slightly bizarre, I think, but these yeah. are the cardboard cutouts they're putting in the stadiums, so you know, weird. all these the fake, different the fake ways. The fictional of... FIFA noise as well in the background. Yeah, I actually, I have to say, I know a lot of people are quite um, anti the FIFA, the, the football noise, but I actually don't mind it because I think that they've done it quite well. I think well. there's definitely a further conversation to maybe, maybe we had on another episode about potentially how the broadcasters could have made it, made it more maybe engaging for the fans in terms of, I think I was saying to someone that I know that it would have been great to maybe watch the game from a sort of different angle, like from a ref cam perspective or or to, yeah. to have the option to maybe I listen to, to the noise from the benches and from the players. And although there obviously will be a, a lot of swearing involved there, um, but um, <laughs> it, it would have been sort of great to hear that because I think two of the games I probably enjoyed the most was the game where Bayern Munich beat Dortmund. Um, obviously they had yeah. to win that game to almost more or less seal the title and you could almost hear the like how tight and tense the game was because obviously it was only one margin uh, 1-0 of course and I think that sort of hearing hearing that level of, of what actually is spoken and said within a high level game was really was really good to see I think the West Ham and Tottenham game unfortunately for yourself for me was probably the best sort of game end-to-end wise that I've watched um, in this sort of period but um but yeah, definitely. And um, I think one question we we'll always end on with all of our guests is, and I think you've sort of alluded to it so far, is is what the footy needs to change within your space. And I think um, 
due to the fact that I, of course, have you on here and you've worked across multiple sports like football, tennis, athletics, rugby. Um, I think it'd be great to almost um, yours to be directed towards the sort of lessons that football can learn from, from other sports because we don't always get it right. Yes, football is the most global sport worldwide, but there's still a lot we can improve on. Like you can, you can almost look at how poorly we use technology in comparison to, to other sports like rugby and, and tennis where it's much more seamless. So what the footy uh, needs to change within football? Football has become so big and it's really about, um, the, there's so many external factors that drive the game rather than the, the pure love of sport sometimes, which I get a bit frustrated with, um, mm. but I understand it because it is this massive machine that just runs through sports. Um, but I think it's really great um, to sort of take a step back and understand the power that football has to change lives and the you know we've just seen what's what's been happening recently you know around um you know, players taking a stance in in black Lives masters and um marcus rashford and his ability to change government policy and mm. and actually recognizing that footballers are so influential and and i think you know we do see that in a lot of other sports because a lot of other athletes perhaps have to fight more for their brand um because they perhaps don't have the same level of commercial revenue that that what well, sort of revenue that the football players do and actually, it's 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 been really um, really nice to see a lot of these players. You know, even you know Sterling did it already in his fight against against racism. racism but actually, yeah. using yeah, using you know they are in a in a unique place. They have got uh, they have got a voice that can be heard where perhaps other people can't be. Um, so really using that um, to drive change. And I don't, I know that's probably not exactly where you were hoping I'd go with that answer. No, but it's, um, it's but, definitely, know, definitely useful, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I'm someone who, who works in sport because I love sport and I really see the benefit it has on society. You know, even we're talking about COVID now, hopefully, um, you know, organisations like UEFA, FIFA, Premier, the Premier League clubs, you know, will actually use this, use this moment to actually really, really drive football to make change, hopefully. No, that's that's really useful. But it's now come to the time to reveal your answers to what the footy are you lying for? What are you lying for? So, I have played tennis against Pat Cash on court number three at Wimbledon. So you did Lovely. get that one right. <laughs> tied tied um, and levelled now. <laughs> but... Oh no, the butter's <laughs> come. No, no. But um, as much as I do know Usain, we've never actually raced against each other. Um, <sighs> but I did serve tea to the Queen at the Royal Household Cricket Match. And was I right that was to do with your waitressing days back in the day? It was. It was when I was at law school, <sighs> actually. Oh no. <laughs> A long, so again, long time ago. <laughs> so I've, I've lost yet again 2-1 to the guests. So I'm now 4-2 <laughs> down. Um, Rowena, it's been an absolute pleasure deep diving into the commercialisation of sport, the football event calendar, the lessons that we can learn from other sport. Uh, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Guys, if you love today's episode, 
Download, subscribe, rate and review, and tell a friend to tell a friend. Let's go. What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now it's a putting off. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Team. Let's just win this to appease the fans. Fifteen minutes could save you fifteen percent or more. My dad used to say that. Sure, yeah, it's from Geico. Yeah, whenever I would ask my dad for life advice, he'd sit me down and say, "Son, fifteen minutes could save you fifteen percent or more." And look at me now—a well-adjusted adult with a drawer full of plastic bags I'll never use. <laughs> okay, I'm confused. Was your dad a licensed Geico agent? Nah, he was just a real good dad. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Team USA is training hard and ready for the Olympic Games. And so is Jacob. Woo! I've got my lucky shirt and Xfinity Flex. Oh yeah. Jacob's family got Xfinity Internet with the best Wi-Fi for their home and a Flex 4K streaming box free, plus Peacock Premium included. So Jacob is ready for anything. Go Team USA! With medal ceremonies, highlights, interviews, and more, plus all his favorite streaming apps in one place. Can your internet do that? Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Peacock subscription required. Xfinity, proud partner of Team USA.